0: 7th of April, 2009. A letter of practical advice on Sutra and Tantra. We are studying this letter that uh, Tsongkhapa wrote. And I'm happy to tell everybody that the translation of it is now finally online on my website. So if you'd like to read the whole text, it's there. Um, Tsongkhapa is writing this letter in answer to a request by a great meditator who's both Tsongkhapa's student and teacher to give some practical advice on how to practice the highest class of tantra nutra yoga and this is an opportunity to explain practical advice on both sutra and tantra since sutra is the basis for tantra practice so Just in brief, let's review. Tsongkhapa says we have all the basic factors that we need to be able to practice. Excellent uh, working basis of a precious human rebirth. We've met with the teachings. We have a teacher. We have power of mind and intelligence to differentiate between what to practice and what we need to get rid of. And so, we need to then engage ourselves in the teachings. For that, we need to rely on a spiritual master who's well qualified, who knows uh, what is to be practiced, what's to be gotten rid of, doesn't add anything, doesn't leave anything out, and knows the proper order of how to develop them. The teacher needs to have gotten training himself or herself through a similar process with their own teacher and based on the great classics. As for how to begin, we need to, first of all, get the proper motivating mental framework. This is discussed in the general sutra teachings as presented in the graded paths or Lam Rim. So having our interest being in improving future lives, then in gaining liberation and then in gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all, then to build up these Motivating mental framework so that we have them all the time in a sincere level. We need to know how to meditate and then Tsongkhapa goes into a great discussion about how to meditate. There's no need to go through all the details of that again, but uh, how to generate a certain state of mind. And uh, we need to have this motivation throughout the practice. Then. Sunkapā emphasizes the importance of ethical discipline and keeping vows for uh, engaging in Tantra. And this means the uh, vows for individual liberation, the moksha vows, vows, Bodhisattva vows, I should say, and Tantric vows. And when we uh, receive an empowerment, it's very important that we take these vows and the uh, basis for it. it, needs to be some level of pranimoksha either lay or for uh, monks or nuns. Then, in terms of the practice of Anuttara Yoga Tantra, the highest class of Tantra, there's the generation and complete stages, and Tsongkhapa emphasizes the need to do this in their proper order. Then, in terms of the generation stage, Tsongkhapa Uh, focuses his discussion on how to uh, visualize and uh, visualize ourselves as a Buddha figure and not only as an individual Buddha figure but in a mandala with a great many other figures as well. And Tsongkhapa goes into again great detail as to how to visualize. No need to repeat all of that. Then uh, concerning the complete stage, Tsongkhapa uh, just mentions that uh, the uh, main part of it is the uh, meditations on the energy channels, energy winds and creative energy drops, and says that uh, we should get their individual guideline instructions from our teachers concerning that. And then there's, he starts the discussion of voidness because in the non-Galuk traditions, they always speak about uh, the uh, voidness, which is the absence of truly established existence. But then they speak of voidness beyond all words and concepts, which is the equivalent of uh, the voidness of, what should we say? Truly established existence, the voidness of voidness and Voidness of both or neither. So it's just a different way of uh, explaining the meditations on voidness. And Tsunkapada discusses this uh, a little bit to say that uh, the voidness that's understood, whether on Sutra or Tantra, whether on the generation stage or the complete stage, all of that is exactly the same. It's the absence of any impossible way of existing, whether that be truly established existence or non-existence or truly -truly established existence or whatever, all these various permutations. Then Tsongkhapa goes into a uh, discussion of voidness itself. And he says that although there may be certain practitioners who based on previous uh, practice in uh, former lifetimes are able to uh, gain uh, realization all at once, meaning that uh, they get, when they gain a non-conceptual cognition of voidness, that uh, immediately all at once gets rid of both the emotional and cognitive obscuration, so they achieve both, uh, what should we say, seeing pathway of mind, liberation and enlightenment, all at once. But uh, this is uh, an extremely tiny minority and for everybody else, we need to work in this lifetime as well with lines of reasoning. And for those for whom it happens all at once, they've worked with these lines of reasoning in previous lifetimes. So no matter what, we need to do that type of logical uh, study. and. Sunkhapa says that, uh, he points out, the most commonly studied line of reasoning, which is uh, the line of reasoning of parted from being either one or many, uh, which is referring to uh, the um, basis for labeling and what the label is uh, referring to. And these are neither the same. If they were truly existent, they would have to be either the same or they would have to be many. In other words, they'd have to be either one truly existent thing or two or more. And if neither of those are the case, then (coughs) there's no such thing as truly established existence. We've discussed this at length in several classes, so no need to discuss that any further. So that brings us to today's section today's passage, so let me read. Tsongkhapa goes on. He says, When we seek our understanding of voidness by training like this and studying and thinking about scriptural quotations and lines of reasoning, there are two ways in which such an understanding can be generated, a deviant and a non-deviant one. Of these, the first might be as follows. This is the deviant one. So now Tsongkhapa follows uh, a method that uh, he uses in so many of his texts. Deviant means that it goes away from what is correct. It deviates. So. so one. one which is, uh, which deviates, which goes away from what's correct, and one which does not. So the method that Sankhapa uses so frequently And it goes back to Nagarjuna's methodology as well, is to point out mistaken views and then to uh, refute them. So Tsongkhapa points out some very subtle mistaken views. He says, of these, the first might be as follows. This is deviant way. Suppose we had analyzed from the viewpoint of many lines of reasoning, the arising, ceasing and so forth of phenomena. When we had done so, remember, when you uh, read, for instance, the uh, root verses on uh, Madhyamaka by Nagarjuna, it says no arising, no ceasing, etc., no abiding. You have a similar type of passage in the Heart Sutra. So suppose we had analyzed from the viewpoint of many lines of reasoning, the arising, ceasing, and so forth of phenomenon. When we had done so, the entire presentation of conventional truth had fallen apart for us, and thereby we could not find any way of taking anything as being conventionally this. Thus we felt there was nothing conventionally true or real. Because of that, we might come to the wrong conclusion that all bondages and liberations from uncontrollably recurring samsaric existence are, in fact, like all bondages and liberations of children of barren women. Then we would go on to wrongly imagine that the occurrence of happiness and suffering from constructive and destructive actions was, in fact, no different than the arising of horns from a rabbit's head. Thereby, we would come to a completely false understanding that all of conventional truth is distorted conventional truth and that all conceptual cognitions are distorted cognitions that are deceived about their conceptualized objects. Okay, so now we have to look at this in more detail. We need to analyze arising and ceasing. Ceasing, by the way, is not the same word as perishing, ceasing means true cessation, true stopping, so that something never recurs again. The word that's translated, that I would translate as perishing, means just what happens when things are impermanent or non-static. They automatically end, so it's not talking about that, the word uh, that's being referred to here, and in all these discussions of uh, No arising, no abiding, no ceasing, is the same word that's used for the Third Noble Truth. True stopping or true cessation. So what actually is uh, the point of the whole analysis of arising and abiding and ceasing? His Holiness pointed this out, actually, in uh, the teaching that uh, was just uh, a few weeks ago in Dharamsala, that uh, all of this has to do with dependent arising. In other words, the arising of samsara, the maintenance or continuation of samsara, and the ceasing of samsaric existence in terms of uh, the 12 links of dependent arising in, uh, what should we say, progressive order, which generates samsaric existence and in reverse order, which causes samsaric existence to stop forever. That's what this is all about. I'm I'm not clear about the difference between ceasing and perishing. Okay, ceasing means that samsaric existence, let's say suffering, ends forever. That it never continues. Perishing is the word that Everything perishes from moment to moment. So one particular suffering, let's say your toothache, will perish. It will come to an end naturally because of impermanence. But when we talk about ceasing, we're talking about suffering never, ever arising again. Of course, the same suffering that you had of the toothache is not going to arise again, but it's not talking about that talking about uh, continuums, mm-hmm. continuation. Mm-hmm.
1: So um, you, would, you would call it perishing if, if one moment of suffering is replaced by the next moment of that continuum of suffering? Right.
0: Yes. Right. So perishing is also when one moment of suffering ends and the next moment uh, uh, begins, you know, or arises from it. That's that's also one form of subtle impermanence or non staticness that things change from moment to moment.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, could you show them where the kissing are? Okay, so we have uh, when we're talking about no arising, no abiding, no ceasing, we're really talking about a whole samsaric existence within the context of the twelve links of dependent arising the arising of suffering from an uh, awareness, the first link, and its maintenance through the rest of the uh, links, and its ceasing by means of getting rid of unawareness or ignorance, so that suffering never arises again, rebirth never arises again. So we can use, as I it's saying, there are many lines of reasoning that we could use to analyze arising and ceasing. Talking about the voidness of arising and ceasing. So the voidness of arising, that has to do with the voidness of cause and effect. So we have studied, those of you who were here for the uh, ninth chapter of Shanti Shantideva's text, engaging in Bodhisattva behavior, Jaya Vatara, you'll recall that uh, there's a big discussion of, in terms of the voidness of uh, the cause, the whole process of causality, refutation that things could arise from no cause or they uh, arise from a cause that's the same as the result. Yes, it means the result already exists in the cause. So we had the discussion that uh, if things the argument, the line of reasoning, that if things arose from no cause, then anything could happen at any time. And so that you know is ridiculous, then things could arise from totally irrelevant causes, etc. And this is uh, one of the incorrect views of, uh, generally, the cause of suffering, the Second Noble Truth, that uh, if you plant a um, chili seed, you'll get a sugar bush or something like that, or that uh, without planting a seed, something is going to grow. So this doesn't make any sense. Now, the Samkhya view which is that the uh, result is already fixed and inherent in the cause. We didn't really discuss it uh, in terms of uh, one further point when we had our discussion in the uh, course on Shantideva that I'd like to bring up, which is a great misconception of karma, which is that it's predetermined In other words, already the result is fixed and exists within the cause. So if you've built up a certain karmic potential, that the cause there is fixed in terms of uh, what will happen, what will result from it. So although that's not taking the uh, same position as the samkhya position, which is that the, um, you know, the cloth exists already in the cotton. And so it's just a matter of manifesting. It's a variation of that and really very similar and I think a type of misconception that many, many people have in terms of karma, that it's a type of predetermination or fate or destiny, that, uh, well, I've done a certain action and for sure I'm going to suffer in a hell or something like that. So what is wrong with this? What's wrong with this point of view? You can purify. Okay, we can purify negative karma, so it can be affected, and we can weaken positive I'm using karma in a loose way, I mean the karmic aftermath, the potentials, so we can weaken, like for instance through anger, through a lot of negative actions, you can weaken the force of the uh, ripening. Okay, but that's a very gross level actually of uh, the discussion. Think a little bit more deeply. What about… Well, now he's saying that if the result is already uh, in the cause, then it is eternal, it can't be changed. Right, it can't be changed. So that obviously is uh, a summary of what we've just said. But here we're just thinking in terms of getting rid of the results so that you don't experience the result in the case of negative ones or weakening or um, prolonging when the result will happen in terms of a positive karmic uh, aftermath. But what about how something actually is going to ripen? It needs also
2: circumstances.
0: It needs circumstances, exactly. So that's a very, very important point. In other words, if I hit you, is it already predetermined that as a result of that, in some future life, you're going to hit me? And I hit you on the nose, so it's predetermined that you're going to hit me on the nose? This is, I think, a more subtle point in terms of how will karma ripen? In what form will it ripen? And that is dependent on circumstances. Now, is it part of the ripening of our karma that the circumstances will happen? Let's say in terms of I hit you with a car. So now is there the karmic result that I'm going to be hit by a car by you or by somebody else? Well, no, because uh, it could be affected by causes and conditions. But let's say even if the ripening is going to happen or does happen in terms of being hit by a car, by you in the future. Did my karma cause you to drive the car at that time so that you hit me? Obviously not. Obviously not. Although we tend to think that, don't we? It's my fault, in a sense. But no, it's not. We have the karma to be hit by a car or hit by something else or whatever. I mean, it has to be in the same category. It's not that just anything could happen from the karma. That would then be almost like no cause, wouldn't it?
2: to me? Maybe you produce it by your own source. Is it
0: possible? Well, he's saying that uh, if we have negative karma and uh, we think about it and are very um, paranoid, for example, do you, do you we and we think then we feel guilty and we think we're going to get punished, would that affect the ripening of the karma? What do you think? Yes, it acts as one of many, many circumstances or conditions. I would think it would tend to ripen the potential that's there. It would, it would, I would, imagine. It would tend to ripen the potential that's there. Why? Analyze. If you purify the, he says, if you, pur- if you can purify by your thoughts of regret and uh, um, promise not to do it again, etc., then you could intensify the result. How? you can purify your karma so you're saying can you purify your karma by thoughts only you apply the opponent forces so it is to purify on the initial level admit that what you've done was a mistake regret it which means not feeling guilty but I wish I hadn't done that then the uh, promise that I'm going to try not to repeat it then reaffirming the direction that we're going in life, of refuge and Bodhicitta, trying to become a Buddha to help everybody, and then applying some opponent force, which could be meditation like Vajrasattva, purification, uh, or the deepest method would be meditation on voidness. So you could do not all of those things and ripen. So what is not doing that? I, you know, there was nothing. I don't admit that it was a mistake. It was not a mistake. It was perfectly okay. What I did, I don't regret it. I'm go- I feel happy about it, in fact. I'm going to certainly repeat it again. And I don't, uh, you know, life is just uh, to get as much as you can and be as happy as you can. And I'm certainly not going to apply any opponent force. So, in fact, I'll do the opposite. That would would intensify it, but this is not the example that you said. What's your name, by the way? Frank. Frank. It's not the example that Frank said. Frank said the example is guilt. Why would that cause the karma to be heavier? What's wrong with it? Christian, I
1: mean the thing I can imagine is you uh, pretty much identify it with. I mean, one one way of purification is that you uh, meditate on the voidness uh, of the uh, of the actions that you've done. Of course, while acknowledging that it, it was destructive. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the other hand, if you if you are identifying with it, then uh, your whole self image is created as as an identity that is uh, like inseparably connected with that negative action but we aren't inseparably connected with that that negative action even if
0: it's a negative action and we have to change our ways So what he's saying is very correct. He's saying that with guilt, this is the complete opposite of the understanding of voidness. The understanding of voidness we can purify it in terms of understanding the voidness of cause and effect and and so on. We can purify it in the sense that we don't create the conditions that would cause the karma to ripen, which, if we speak in terms of the 12 links of dependent arising, you remember are craving in terms of happiness not to be parted from it, unhappiness to be parted from it, neutral for it to just continue. And then some obtainer attitude, which was grasping for a solid me. So if we don't have a condition to ripen the karma, it won't ripen. So here, with guilt, we're creating even more strongly the conditions that will ripen the karma because we are holding on to this solid me, what I've done, And very, very strong grasping for truly established existence of me, the guilty one, how bad I am, which of course is a suffering state of mind. And so we are creating and reinforcing more and more strongly the conditions that will ripen the karmic potentials and tendencies and so on. So, yes. Because
2: that is what happens, in it, as I think, in the church.
0: Right. So he says that's what happens in the church, or it doesn't necessarily have to be the church. That happens in people who are very strongly influenced by the concept of guilt, regardless of how they might learn that concept. So.
2: But in that case, when. when confess and then it's the, same, the priest says now it's good it's, it's, you know, it's mm. clean you know then
0: in a way you don't identify with this guilt anymore. okay so this is a very good example she says look at practices and uh, of confession that we have in catholicism for example yeah, that you Catholic, confess you confess to somebody and you are forgiven.
2: So you get rid of, the-
0: so you get rid of it uh, and usually do an opponent force. You'll say some Hail Marys or you'll do something. What's missing here? Is there a promise not to repeat it? I don't know. For most people, no, but I think it's part of life, what. Is- it's supposed to be there. Right, the reply is that you shouldn't do it again. Do most people actually think like that? I mean, regardless of what it should be, the point is, what is the difference between this and the Buddhist um, purification practice? Frank? I think uh,
2: that you really must uh, have a strong wish to change your mind. Right. Mm -hmm. There must be some some meaning behind that um,
0: aim. Right. You have to have a very strong wish to change it, to change yourself and not just rely on somebody else. This has to do with the concept of forgiveness. Does forgiveness have anything to do with the Buddhist way of thinking about this? Can somebody, can Buddha forgive us for our negative actions, and then we're purified? It, it it's irrelevant. It has nothing to do with, with it. But, but I wonder if, if the effect is not uh, similar. The is effect the effect similar? Well, look at the, look at the, the opponent path forces. Admitting that what you did was a mistake... Okay, now there's a difference between admitting that it was a mistake and admitting that it was bad. From a Buddhist point of view, you act negatively because you're confused, because you don't understand cause and effect, you don't understand reality. Therefore, you are an object of compassion. In other religions, Some other religions or ways of thinking, you act negatively because you're bad. You disobeyed the role, the rules. You disobeyed the laws, and you need to be punished. Or an evil being made you. Or an evil being made you, do that. The devil made you do that. Um, But you can be forgiven by the person who made the laws. And then you're excused. So even that first step of admitting that you were, you know, that what you did was incorrect, the whole basis for it is quite different. And when somebody forgives you, in a sense, it's sort of mercy. It's the mercy of, you know, whoever, that they forgive you. But what's the basis for that mercy? What's the basis for the love? It's quite different. It's quite different. It's a very different framework from, you know, you act because of being confused and unaware of reality. So, again, sort of, I am truly a bad person, but now I'm forgiven, so it's okay. Then regret, it's not so much regret, it's guilt, which is, again, the strong identification. I'm not going to do it again. Well, how seriously is that done? Do you reaffirm the direction that you're going in? I don't know. You do some opponent, you say some mantra or some prayers, but I don't think the effect is exactly the same. It's sort of like, wow, you know, I got off free from that sin. Whereas that's not really the appropriate uh, response from a, a Buddhist point of view you've done a purification it's not wow you know i got out of that also, one a, i escaped the law well no i mean you're saying without the understanding of voidness you're taking the so-called sin what uh, we call negative potential uh, as something solid and uh, truly with this existence truly established as bad, but now you've gotten rid of it. So it is I mean, it's interesting. and you know, this is Sunkopass's point here. It's saying that then the cause has become totally non-existent. That's sin. So you have to think about that. Now, from what Christian said, this is very interesting, that in terms of voidness, you understand the voidness of cause and effect. But Tsunkapa, what he's pointing out is that you have to be careful when you negate truly existent cause and effect that you don't negate causality altogether and say, well, there's no truly existent cause, there's no truly existent result, Therefore, there's no cause and effect. So nothing is going to happen. So if I understand voidness, then there will be no result. I have negated the existence. I have negated the existence of the result. This is called nihilism, the belief in nihilism. Nothing. That nothing exists. So that's not the case either. It's not that the result was truly existent and now it's become nothing. That's not what our understanding of voidness does, does it? Okay, so... Right, so he's saying that his understanding of karma, which is that if you cause pain to somebody else, that you will experience pain back. So you experience, so, and you could learn something from it. Maybe you could learn something from it. Most cases we never learn and just go on repeating forever. Um, it's possible to learn possible, it's not inevitable, that you will learn. So, we've covered a few different uh, strands, a few different arguments here. Let's get back to what I was pointing out uh, originally, which was that what we do doesn't cause the other person to hit us with a car. If we've hit somebody with a car, it doesn't cause somebody else to hit us with a car. They're driving and hitting somebody with a car as a result of their own karmic potentials. Our karmic potential is just to meet with something like that, to experience it. We experience something similar to what we have created. So yes, what you said is uh, correct. We experience something similar to what we have created, so it has to be in the same category. You know, uh, that's another one of the misunderstandings of the Second Noble Truth, that a a cause can produce a dissimilar effect, that the cause and effect have to be some sort of similar category. But what it will specifically ripen in will depend on so many other causes and circumstances. So one will definitely be our state of mind. do We feel guilty, etc. Do we apply these opponent forces? Do we apply it with grasping for solid existence, which will just cause the karma to ripen? You know, even more. Or do we actually understand voidness and what voidness does? the understanding of voidness does. The understanding of voidness does not cause a truly existent result that was already predetermined to become totally non-existent. What it does, which would be this concept of, you know, confession and now you're purified of your sins, but rather what it does is uh, Yeah, because the battery is in, yes, but uh, rather the understanding of voidness prevents you from the generating the conditions which will cause the karma to ripen. So we're not uh, negating cause and effect in this understanding, so one's view of cause and effect becomes very, very, what should we say, transparent in a sense, it's not a very solid view, remember we had the same thing in terms of the voidness of the result, that a result can't come from nothing, A nothing can't turn into a something, and, you know, a something can't turn into the same thing. I mean, either, you know, if the result is totally non-existent before, then it can't become truly existent after at a certain point. What could cause it to do that? And if it already exists, then why would it come into existence again? There's no need for it to come into existence again. So, we have to think in terms of cause and effect. Voidness of cause, voidness of effect. When you put that together, then you have an understanding of voidness of cause and effect. So, what you're left with then is dependent arising. Now, of course, what I just said is not easy by any means understand but slowly one has to deconstruct this idea of a true arising or a true ceasing a true ceasing would be a truly existent thing then becomes totally non-existent yeah Jorge Uh,
1: there's there's one point in this uh how the, the cause uh, is connected to the effect in karma that uh, bothers me a bit when you say that they have to be in the same category, like uh, category sounds like conceptual in a way and also where do you draw the line that uh, what corresponds, what, what falls in the same category?
0: Right, Now that's an interesting question. It says that uh, when we say that the Uh, Cause uh, and the effect have to be in the same category. Category is a word that we've been using in connection with concepts, so maybe that wasn't the best choice of words by me to uh, uh, explain this, because it's certainly not the same word in Tibetan that's being used here. They have to be similar. Uh, They have to be in the same family is literally the word that's used in uh, in Tibetan. Same caste, actually, caste or family, that's the word that's uh, there. And so then the question is, what defines the caste or family? So analyze. Can there be a truly established defining characteristic on the side of this family that characterizes them? No, No, obviously not. So the defining characteristic is just what uh, a mind can label onto a, what should we say, a sequence of cause and effect. So, what would cause, what would validate that two things are in the same family? Recall Chandra three criteria for validating cognition. One, there has to be a convention. So the convention would be that there's a family of similarity of cause and effect. It's okay, so there's a convention. Two, it has to be not contradicted by a mind that validly sees conventional truth. So, Who would see the conventional truth of karmic cause and effect? Who? The
1: experiencer?
0: No. Who? Not the experiencer. We did something in a previous lifetime and it ripens now. We have no idea what we did in a previous lifetime. Buddha. Only a Buddha knows cause and effect. Fully, only a Buddha understands karma. So how do we know that what Buddha said about karma is correct? Why is Buddha a valid source of information about that? Right. Right. Okay. So that's correct. She's saying that if what a Buddha says about obscure phenomenon like voidness or how to develop concentration can be validated by our own experience. And if the only reason why a Buddha was able to have enough force in his understanding of voidness, that it got rid of all the obscurations, and he was able to become a Buddha, if that force was compassion, which was to benefit others, then there's no reason why Buddha would lie and deceive us about extremely obscure phenomenon like karma. So based on that line of reasoning, this is given in Dharmakirti's Pramanavartika, Commentary on Valid Ways of Knowing, that therefore you can infer or conclude that Buddha is a valid source of information about extremely obscure phenomenon. Now you have to, of course, understand, is this... uh, You know, Buddha might also have said that there's Mount Meru and there's the four continents and the earth is flat and square. Is Buddha a valid source of information for that? And the hells are a certain number of kilometers underneath the earth. Well, that wasn't the teaching of Buddha, you could say, but uh, what about other things? Right. Dalai Lama said he wasn't a geographer. Buddha wasn't a geographer. He was teaching us about how to get rid of suffering, how to gain liberation and enlightenment. He was using the knowledge and symbolism of the time. Right. Using the knowledge and symbolism of the time as a device to be able to speak to people. But what Buddha was an expert in is liberation and enlightenment. Therefore, the topic of karma is completely relevant. So we can conclude that, you know, we're talking, let's get back to our topic, which is the talking about things being in the family. The same family. It's the same family. So there's a convention that there's this family. It's not contradicted by somebody who validly sees conventional truth. That's Buddha. Buddha saw the conventional truth that this cause brings about that result. We won't, we wouldn't be able to know that, but Buddha knew that. We speculate. It's called presumption. Well, even, it's not really even presumption. Presumption is when you assume that something's correct without really being convinced by inference and logic. So for most of us, if we're not convinced of this argument of Dharmakirti, that Buddha is a valid source of information about karma, then that's presumption. We presume that it's correct. I guess it's correct. Hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But if we really think in terms of logic, then there's no reason why Buddha would deceive us concerning this. So then you could take what Buddha said about conventional truth of cause and effect, karmic cause and effect, is true. It's not contradicted by what Buddha said. And it's not contradicted by a mind that validly cognizes deepest truth in terms of voidness. So based on that, then there is this valid convention of a similar family of cause and effect. That's, I think, the way that you would analyze it. So, you know you, you know, you hit somebody and, well, are you going to be hit? I mean, look at it. Look at it. Buddha, you know, go back to the examples. Classic example of the um the fact that it's always used as the example that if you have committed a karmic cause the effect will not be wasted there will be some effect buddha in a previous lifetime killed the oarsman on a boat who is going to kill 499 merchants on the boat But he did this in order to save these other people from being killed and to prevent this potential murderer from having such horrible consequences from it. And Buddha did this totally accepting on himself whatever suffering consequences would occur. What was the result? The result was that he was able to complete the first zillion eons of positive force in the way to become a Buddha, and he experienced a headache. So, is headache in the same category as killing 499 people? I think that's a very good example to see that it would not be so literal he killed 499 people so all of those people are going to kill him 499 times suffering suffering this is the category the similar category so the family the caste would be the caste would be suffering or the caste would be happiness Right. An arhat would still have physical pain because of the past, but wouldn't suffer from it. But the, the actual uh, physical happening would occur without the suffering. So, I mean, we can differentiate more clearly, you know, between something similar happening to you, whether you experience it with happiness, unhappiness. Let's not go into such detail. So these castes are extremely general. So I think these castes of family are fairly general. But the less opponent forces you apply, probably the closer it is to what you did. Closer the result would be to what you did. This I'm only guessing. What other families? I would think happiness and unhappiness.
2: Suffering.
0: Unhappiness is suffering. The same word. Find these two? I would think so. Destructive and destructive actions neutral. Right. I mean what are the laws of karma? From this? if you experience the law of certainty of karma, if you experience suffering and unhappiness, it is certain that it is the result of destructive behavior. If you experience happiness, it is certain that it is the result of constructive behavior. But
2: isn't conventional happiness also part
0: of suffering? And that it is happen? conventional happiness part of suffering? Yes, but that's taking it on a different level. We're talking about conventional happiness, that feeling which, when it ends, you would like for it to—you would normally like for it to continue to resume—and uh, unhappiness, that feeling which, when it you experience it, you would like it to end, the I definitions. Know why was this idea of caste was introduced? Maybe why was this idea, idea of caste introduced? Because of the law of certainty of karma. It's
1: destructive or destructive. Simple as that, no? But they're talking about the caste of this, uh, of the cause and the result. Probably it has to do with the fact that it can be more specific, no?
0: More it makes it I it would make it much more complicated if the if the um, castor family, the similar family was much much more limited in uh, its scope. If you look at the five, Maybe I don't want to bring that in. That'll just make things more complicated. Let's leave that out. I was just thinking of another usage of the term things being in the similar family. I think uh, the,
1: this what you said is uh, the most general families, but uh, one can imagine even in, in these families of suffering and happiness, one can imagine uh, other different families, but without a line borderline mm. on the left and on the
0: right, Right, so he's saying, within this larger cast, can we uh, differentiate subcasts of, uh, of similar things? Maybe, I don't know, but uh, I don't yeah. think we need, I don't think we need to analyze so no. so deeply, uh, not deeply, it's in such detail on this aspect. I don't think it's going to get us further in our understanding of voidness here.. Because of, because of whatever.
1: Patience,
0: you will yes, be, when you practice patience, then you then will be, then you will be beautiful. will be beautiful I will Okay, so yes, this would be a subcategory. If we talk about the specific, if you look at the 10 destructive and the 10 constructive actions, they're quite specific in terms of what the results are. In terms of uh, stealing, then you will be poor. In terms of killing, your life force will be weakened. Yes, I think there are subcategories here. Or you will get sick. So, for instance, the, uh, I think you're totally right then, for instance, Buddha killed the 499, Mert uh, killed the oarsman, and he experienced physical pain. So, he, that's from taking a life, you do experience some type of physical pain or unhappiness. So, yeah, there would be subcategories, subfamilies. His motivation was completely different. Right. That's why his, because his motivation, Buddha's motivation was so strong mm. Isn't it that odd? that caused the karmic force to ripen in something very, very minor. Because in general, the motivation is very destructive. And right. The motivation is very distru- Yeah. Normally, if we kill, the motivation is quite negative. Okay, now, voidness of uh, cause and effect. Do a certain action, will have a result. That result is not already existing and fixed in the cause. It's not that the cause is totally irrelevant to the result. A cause will, a result will arise dependent on many causes and circumstances, on many circumstances, I should say, which will all arise from their own causes. That result isn't something that was totally non existent before it happened, nor was it totally existent before it happened. So what was it? The cause ceases when the result occurs. How's the connection made? Is there a time when the two exist at the same time, the cause and result, and something connects them?
1: Well, I mean, even saying the cause ceases when the result occurs, uh,
0: the cause perishes when the yeah, result yeah, but, I mean, when the result arises. Right. So is that overly precise? The point is that the cause and the result aren't simultaneous. Yeah, but I mean the the And so is it that a truly existent cause perishes and then a truly existent result pops up?
1: I mean the point being
0: no. we we draw that.
1: To where we, we say that's still the cause, and here is the result. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a continuous process.
0: Continuous. Okay, it's a continuous process: cause and result. Does that mean the cause changes into the result, like uh, like a continuum? Conventionally, yes. Conventionally, yes. How?
1: Well, conventionally, by transforming into the result. <laughs> it
0: transforms into the result. <laughs> what does that mean?
1: Not meaning that you still can find in some, 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 some way the cause uh, inside of the result or already the result. In the cause.
0: Okay, so we have an obtaining cause. Now we're using a, uh, an example, the seed and the sprout. Okay, the seed transforms into the sprout. Well, is transform a proper word? What does transform mean? How do you understand transform? How do you understand a continuum? What's the connection between moment one and moment two?
1: Similarity that can
0: be labeled. <laughs> a similarity, same family. Similarity that can be labeled. Um,
1: yeah, this is some sort of
0: some sort of similarity so this is you know and and of course you could say well where do you draw the line between the cause and the result well with the seed and the sprout that's a little bit what should we say not so clear with a karmic cause and a result a ripening of it that becomes awkward because there are certain karmic uh, potentials that will give many results not just one so That becomes a little bit more complicated, doesn't it? But this is where the analysis goes to, is the analysis of a continuum. And what does it mean that one thing transforms into something else? I don't think transform... I mean, it's not as though the next moment is already there in the the previous moment and it transforms into that, it just becomes manifest. Certainly not that. And it can't be that there's no connection between moment one and moment two. Then moment two arises out of nothing. So this is what Nagarjuna Tsongkhapai, everybody, is saying. If you could, you know, acknowledge cause and effect while understanding voidness, then this is Tsongkhapa will quote Nagarjuna. This is more wonderful than wonderful, more amazing than amazing. Yeah, Marianne.
2: I would say uh, it's, it's in a way it's it's all this is merely um, labeled. You you label this the cause, you label this crowd, and then you you label this uh, the you label this uh, rice or something. you know. Mm. Or you, this you, you, you label seed, and this you label sprout, but there's no there's no sprout and no. no seed. Okay, so she's and saying there is, there is a, a dependent arising that from this you that cannot ripen a dog or something, you know? Right. You seed is not so this there is a link. It, it it is a some certainty, some connection that it can't be a from the seed can't become a dog. Right. So, so this is the dependent arising. But to, to lab, to,
0: otherwise it's only labeling to label it seed and sprout. Right. So she's saying to label seed and label sprout. That's only uh, mental labeling, you know, where you draw the line yes. and so on. This yes. is something which uh, a mind has made up. Yes. So it uh, uh, Clearly, it arises dependently on mental labeling. Yes, yeah, yeah. But but nevertheless, from the seed, you get a sprout. From the the rice seed, you get a rice sprout. You don't get from the rice seed a dog. Yeah.
2: Mm. So it's not
0: completely... So it's not completely chaotic. Yeah. And yet it's not completely fixed. Yeah. OK, so this we could say. Do we really understand it? <laughs> One could say the connection between them is dependent uh, arising. Right. The connection between it is dependent arising. Now, in the case of, yeah, I mean, that's true. In the case of the seed and the sprout, they're both physical things. So that's fairly clear. Uh, that the dividing line of when does the sprout first start to come out of the seed, this becomes a biological issue. But this is not the exact parallel here. The parallel, I mean, what we're talking about is a karmic potential. I mean, first of all, a karmic action, hitting somebody or something like that physical action, then we're talking about a karmic potential which is neither a form of physical phenomenon nor a way of being aware of anything. It's just what can be imputed to connect the action with the result, in a sense, imputed on the mental continuum, that there's something continuing, a potential. It's not physical, it's not mental. And then the result would be some type of experience of either again being hit or experience of unhappiness or something like that. So, clearly, when we're talking about same family, we're not talking about a family of something being a, what we call this, non congruent affecting variables, these sort of abstract things. One's abstract, one is a way of being aware of something suffering So that's not the same type of thing. What the same category is, is that it's, uh, what should we say, coming from, well, that becomes (laughs) awkward. It's the karmic potential that's uh, destructive. So the action is destructive, the karmic potential is destructive, and then the suffering. We talk about tendency, that's uh, neutral. But uh, anyway, it goes like that. So I think it's a fairly clear differentiation between when something is a potential and when something is an actual experience of unhappiness. It's not quite the same as a seed and a sprout, is it? But your point about mental labeling is correct.
2: So then you, you get out of this fixed thing when, when you say yeah it, 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 what, what exact point
0: is, is it turning from a seed to a sprout, you know? Right. It, well, when, what's the exact point when it turns from a seed to a sprout? That's more unclear than when does it actually turn from a potential for being hit by a car and being hit by the car. There, it's quite clear. Well, there's a karmic potential, and then there's an experience of being hit by a car. So although the analogy that's used is the seed and the sprout, it's not a precise analogy. So cause and effect there is a little bit, you know, clearer of what is what. The question is, how does it turn? You know, what maintains the connection? What is the connection? That's the difficult point. Yes? Um,
2: there's one question. How, how, what is uh, responsible for the time? What's responsible
0: from, from the reason? That they did the Mm-hmm. The cause? Mm-hmm. Okay, so what, okay, what affects the, co- the time span here? Many variables affect the time span uh, between the cause and the karmic cause and the effect. There are three categories. There are those actions that will ripen in this lifetime, those actions that will ripen in the immediately following lifetime, and those that will ripen any time after that. the text, they, pardon?
1: If not purified.
0: There are two categories of certainty and uncertainty of the ripening. One is the category of uh, certain that it will ripen or um, uncertain. In other words, it can be purified. Is it determined in retrospect? Yes. Sure, it's determined in retrospect if you've purified it or not. There's another category of certain and uncertain in terms of is it certain when it will ripen? It will ripen either this lifetime, it will ripen definitely in the next lifetime, which is referring to karma of being reborn in Avicii Hell, which is definitely going to ripen in the next lifetime, or an uncertain time of when it will ripen. It will ripen sometime, but it's uncertain when. So this categorization of certainty and uncertainty of ripening of karma has two different meanings. That took a very, very long time for me to get that straight, asking over and over again, and looking up various quotations to get that clear. But there are two distinct meanings, if you look in some of the more minor texts of uh, a sangha and the commentaries. So
1: I'm, I'm a bit uh, wondering about uh, the terminology that it is certain. I mean, what is
0: certain? Well, there are many uses of the word certain. It's certain if there's a law of karma. It's certain that if it's, unhapp- if it's suffering, it came from destructive. If it's mm-hmm. happiness, it came from constructive then there's certainty of time. This is the, it's the same word, but certainty of time has to do with whether or not it will or definitely ripen or can be purified, or certainty in terms of when it will ripen, if it's going to ripen. So
1: there are things that will definitely ripen and can't be purified?
0: There are things that definitely will ripen and can't be purified, not so much purified as referring to positive karma, can't be totally destroyed. If causative karma could be totally destroyed, then there would be those who it would be impossible for them to become enlightened or liberated. It's this whole issue of do they have a cut root, so-called roots of virtue? Some schools in the Chittamatra say that, yes, there are those whose so-called roots of virtue, in other words, the positive force that could act as a root for giving liberation and enlightenment, that that has been cut completely so that you don't have any more. If that were the case, then there are certain beings who could not achieve enlightenment. Well, they, could, uh, get new. they couldn't, ha- they could only get new on the basis of having Something positive already there that would cause them to act constructively. Why would they act constructively? By chance. Hmm. By chance. By Thank you. Accident. By by accident. By no cause. Oh, so okay. that doesn't by work. So the argument. So this is soundly refuted. It's like and a tree without a root. Without a root. You grow you will do. So positive karma can only be severely, severely weakened it can't be totally eliminated
1: but this is how animals get positive potential.
0: how do animals get positive potential All from animals previous animals? lifetimes unless they are a seeing eye dog or lassie or, or you know, some cat. sort of dog yeah, that saves uh, others with their roots cut would, could, could they don't have their roots other. cut that's the whole point only some mm-hmm. schools assert that most of the schools refute that Asymmetric, symmetry is stupid. Why should it be the same in the case of constructive and destructive? Analyze. Analyze. Destructive is based on misunderstanding. Misunderstanding, unawareness of reality can be replaced by correct understanding which has more of a backing, it can be validated. Whereas, um, okay, so destructive has a weak basis, so it can be eliminated. Constructive is based at least on a correct understanding of cause and effect. And if you talk about the positive force that's dedicated to liberation and enlightenment based on correct information as well, that it's possible to achieve that. Nothing. So that can be reaffirmed. So positive karma has a more firm base, positive actions. We're not talking about, you know, the positive karma that keeps you in samsara. But, uh, but even that at least has a correct understanding of cause and effect. So it's stronger than the negative karma in terms of, you know, can it be totally gotten rid of? Negative can be totally gotten rid of, positive can only be severely weakened. So that would affect, that answer, that in terms of your question, the stronger the negative force and the more that it's reaffirmed and, you know, so on, by circumstance it will ripen more quickly. The, or, you know, the opposite, you know, if it's weakened by counteracting forces, it'll ripen, you know, much, much later. In terms of this lifetime, there's a whole list of things that will ripen and that, you know, will tend to ripen in this lifetime. It has to do basically with um, doing extremely positive or extremely negative things with very strong motivation toward your... Those who have been the kindest to you, so your parents, your gurus, etc. You know, to be honest,
2: I have one problem with all the subject.
0: Yeah. Has it hel- he's asking me, has it helped me to understand Buddhist philosophy by you're stopping?
2: you're talking about how the cause is and how it develops and all this stuff.
0: What you're talking in details, how, right
2: how karma works. Uh, knowing that, has it helps you, helped you to, to stop giving, producing d- destructive
0: uh, Oh, that's a very, very good question. Because that's a that very good very question. Good Yes, if we have understood, to a certain extent, the voidness of cause and effect, has it helped us to diminish or lessen our destructive behavior? Well, if we really understood it, I'm not talking about on a personal level, But if we really, really understood it, then, as Tsongkhapa says, the more you're convinced of voidness, the more you're convinced of cause and effect. So you would be quite convinced that uh, suffering consequences will come from acting destructively. Therefore, you would act less destructively. Now, has my level uh, personally of understanding this helped to diminish my acting destructively? Um, That's hard to say. That's hard to say. I certainly personally try to lessen the force Of the negative things that I do, I'll give you an example. One person cheated me out of a lot of money, and I realized that if I got angry, and I was angry in the in the beginning. It really happens, Senora. Yes, absolutely. I was cheated out of a lot of money by somebody. and uh, I was angry at the beginning with this person. But then I very soon realized that getting, being angry is not going to help the situation. It will only make me more unhappy. And it will increase the negative consequences on this person, who, cheated, who I considered a very close friend, but basically was deceiving me. Um, I trusted this person with money, and then they kept it, and ran away. Uh, so I realized that if I, got very, if I continued to be angry with this person, it would cause that person more suffering as a result of, you know, the teaching that the more suffering that the action produces, I mean, that's involved with the suffering, the more suffering the consequence will be. And so I think that my understanding of cause and effect and that things can be affected by lessening the conditions helped me very much not to be so angry. And I stopped being angry with the person. So that's one example in uh, in which it helped. And although, you see, habits are very, very difficult to break, one shouldn't think that just because you gain a great, you know, some level of understanding of voidness, that your negative actions stop so quickly. The habits are very, very strongly ingrained. It's only on the third of the four stages of the path of preparation, the applying pathway of mind. So you've already had, you know, combined shamatha and vipassana focused on voidness already. It's still conceptual, but I mean, you've gotten that and you're able to have this even in your dreams. It's only at that point that you stop creating the negative karma that would bring about a worse, one of the worst rebirths. So given that as a uh, sort of a marking line, you know, at the poor level of understanding that, you know, we have now, or I have now, can't expect that that, you know, the habits, you know, these tendencies to act destructively are going to stop. But what one can do with one's understanding that things are affected by cause and effect, so the understanding of voidness is weaken the uh, factors that would make it so heavy. And that I certainly try to do. Regret. Um, Try to have, you know, as um, less disturbing emotions as possible with it. this type of things, Mm -hmm. this type of things, Right. So what he's saying is that just to have an intellectual understanding doesn't bring about so much transformation. One needs to uh, meditate and uh, daily practice and so on. I don't want to get very picky with you, but... Saying the words uh, and repeating and reminds yourself that... It, you see, I don't want to get picky with you. What does it mean, an in intellectual understanding? Because that can be certainly totally intellectual that you are repeating the words every day. So I think the point, let's not bring in intellectual or non-intellectual, intuitive. The point is to to familiarize yourself with this through a daily practice, which is repeating. This is what Tsongkhapa explains with meditation. You have to repeat it over and over again so you build up a stronger habit so that you remind yourself now Is it sufficient to just remind yourself, don't be angry? I think it's a combination of many things. First of all, discipline. To be able to just go, stop it. At a certain point, you're able to do that. Now, but it's not based totally on discipline, but you have the discipline. So there's mindfulness as well. So, for instance, if I'm in a negative mood and feeling blur, you know, like that, first notice it. Mindfulness has to be there. You know, the longer that you let it go, the more difficult it is to get out of it. And then just say, I'm not going to be in this mood. You don't even have to say anything. You just stop it. Like that. And if you have enough familiarity with... You know, this negative mood is based on, you know, absolute garbage of something ripening that's making me feel, you know, experience unhappiness. There's absolutely no reason why the circumstances that I'm experiencing now should cause that to continue. And so like that, you just, you just stop it. I mean, it's not as though it's something that's there, a train. You have to stop. You just go on to the next moment. It's like reset. It's just like you reset the, uh, the computer. So that comes only as a result of thinking about this, working with this day after day, year after year after year. So that then the combination of mindfulness, discipline, concentration, understanding allows you to just change instantly. It's like, for instance, what you get? You mentioned visualization and uh, uh, mantra practice. It's exactly the same thing, just on a different level of just, instantaneously, I rise as a Buddha figure. You know, instantaneously, you, you know, dissolve this appearance of ordinary appearance and grasping for solid reality and instantaneously thinking in terms of Buddha nature, you generate yourself in the form of the Buddha figure with some understanding of its voidness. So it's exactly the same thing. It can either be done with form, which is then with this Buddha figure thing, or without form which is just change and go on with uh, your conventional life. So, again, this comes from, undoubtedly, from, as you say, from the Tantra practice, uh, combined with all of this Sutra practice of discipline, mindfulness, concentration, and so on. So, yes, it's helped. But that doesn't mean that I, you know, no longer act destructively. I certainly act destructively, but probably far less. And when I do act destructively, it's less heavy in terms of, you know, all the factors that would be there to make it heavy. Okay. That brings us to the end of the class. So we will continue this discussion because Tsongkhapa goes on and on about uh, further misunderstandings that arise from this uh, issue here of uh, can you, uh, does your understanding of voidness, an incorrect, let me put it differently, an incorrect understanding of voidness would cause you to totally discard cause and effect, and the point is that it gives you more confidence and belief in cause and effect. And that is a very, very difficult point, and Sunkab always mentions that that's the most difficult point. That goes back to our discussion that we had, remember our big discussion that we had when we discussed the different uh, Buddhist tenets, the schools of philosophy? What I call the, the Trotzdem factor. Trotzdem is the German word, which means, in spite of that, nevertheless. Shantideva said this. The example that we used was this chair is made of atoms and force fields, and there's nothing solid about it. My body is exactly the same. Trotzdem, nevertheless. I don't fall through the floor, I don't fall, you know, through the chair and the chair holds me up. Nevertheless, it functions." And and Shantideva said, if you could understand that and accept that nevertheless, although things are void of being solid, nevertheless, they function and hold you up, then you're ready to accept on a deeper level of things being void of an even more subtle, impossible way of existing, <coughs> and nevertheless, they still function. And that's what all of this is about, is not to negate that, nevertheless.
1: Or better, or better than, uh, they can only function because
0: they are. And even stronger, this is the, uh, you know, using dependent arising as the co- as the line of reasoning for voidness because they dependently arise they're void because they're void they're void of truly established existence because they're void of truly established existence they dependently arise yes that's the second step the first step is nevertheless the second step is that one proves the other so we will continue with this let's end with the dedication we think whatever positive Force, whatever understanding has come from this, may it go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for reaching enlightenment for the benefit of all.